Last Wednesday was a senseless evil shooting in Kansas City. Last month, there was one like it down in a high school just 45 minutes from here in Perry, Iowa. And there's war in the Middle East and war in Ukraine and, and all these things. We can just begin to wonder, what is wrong with this world? Where is the peace? Where is the rest? Why is everyone so angry? But we don't have to go that far out. We can, even closer to home, we realize things aren't what they ought to be. We find ourselves longing for rest in our own little world. We have family disputes. We have tension in the homes and marriages collapsing, tension in the workplace. And then really close to home, we have tension inside, in our own souls. Sinful habits we can't seem to break, guilt and shame over things we've done and we can't undo. There's physical pain, there's sleepless nights, there's disease, and worst of all, there's death. And it's enough to make us hopeless, isn't it? And we wonder, where is the rest for my soul? You can turn in your Bibles or your Scripture journals here to Hebrews chapter 4, and the word rest is our focus for this morning in our text. And I like that word. I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks. Just, I, I like it. It's such a beautiful word. What if we could have never-ending rest? Never-ending rest, just peace and deep within and a calm. Not just Sunday morning naps. I mean, that is really a sweet part of rest. But it's, it's deeper than that. It's richer than that. To have within no more turmoil and heartache. And sadness, no more bitterness and anger, guilt and shame, no more stress and fear, no more physical and emotional exhaustion. What if we could have all of those things? We are in week five of our series on this book we call Hebrews because it was probably written to a group of Hebrews or Jews who were now Christ followers, Messiah followers. We call it a letter, but more con- actually it's more like a sermon, and it's exhorting us to something. It's urging us on to pay attention to someone, and his name is Jesus. In our passage today, largely chapter 4, it continues this theme that Actually, Pastor Matt began last week. If we could read, have it all back to back, that would really be more helpful. But today's passage emphasizes this word, rest. So let's read it together, and we're going to read all of chapter 4. We won't talk about all of it. We're going to save the last three verses of chapter 4 for next week because it's a transition between our topic today and the topic next week. So we'll read all of chapter 4, but I'd also like to begin a couple verses into chapter 3 to get a bit of the context from last week. So if you're in your scripture journal, start right at the top of the page in verse 15. Quoting from the Old Testament, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom, with whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, 
if not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware. That word means let us fear that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in in that passage, he says, They will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Well, it's hard to miss the word rest here, isn't it? Ten times in this chapter, twice back in chapter 3, the author uses this word, And so, obviously, it's important, but what is he talking about? Yeah, I think he's talking about more than a Sunday afternoon nap and Monday afternoon naps and Tuesdays. I like naps. But there's something beautiful about about rest, even if it includes naps. Getting rejuvenated from our toil. Finding a calmness in life. What is this rest? Well, before we can dive into the depths of chapter 4, I want to refresh ourselves some from chapter 3 last week. 
A key theme there that we looked at is, is a warning to not harden our hearts just like Israel did back in the wilderness 3,000 years ago in Moses' day after they miraculously escaped Egypt. This marvelous, amazing few days, the plagues, the judgments on their oppressors and their freedom through the Red Sea. And we talked about that last fall. We went through the uh, sermon series on the book of Exodus. It was a wonderful time for me uh, learning from that. But we read about Israel's hardness of heart. Yes, Pharaoh had a hard heart. Egypt did. But Israel ended up being the same way. They were stubborn and unbelieving. And not only in Exodus, if we would read the book of Numbers, we'd find out it's even worse than we knew. And in light of this glorious salvation by God to deliver them from centuries of cruel slavery in Egypt, Israel was remarkably stubborn. And the Passover deliverance to them was what the gospel of Christ is to us, but even better, which is a key word in Hebrews. It's what we have is better than what they had. Back then, God made a covenant with, through Moses, He made a covenant with Israel, and it was represented by the Ten Commandments and some other promises, and it was founded upon their deliverance from Egypt, upon their, you might say, their cross and their resurrection moment. Let's look back in Exodus 19, right before the giving of this covenant, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Lord said to Israel in Exodus 19:4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. God is offering them his rest. He's offering them a place with him in beauty and glory and harmony and satisfaction and forgiveness to be the treasured possession of God Almighty. Israel had before them this glorious opportunity, but they didn't keep their end of the covenant. They wouldn't believe. After all that they had seen, the, the amazing Miracles, largely their hearts were hardened just like Pharaoh's. And so the covenant that God made with Israel didn't work because the people were too stubborn to believe. But in his foreknowledge, God graciously, part of his eternal plan, he graciously gave Israel and now us non-Jews, us Gentiles, a new covenant. It's the New Testament. It's what the whole New Testament is about. It's, it's the foundation of this book of Hebrews. So back to chapter 3 of Hebrews, the author warns the people in their day, in the day of this letter was written, he warns them, don't be like your ancestors. Don't be stubborn and unbelieving. And if we are 
we too will never receive the rest that God intended. And so again, we have to ask, what is this rest that Hebrews 4 keeps talking about? Whatever it is, it sounds good to me. I like rest. Let's get into it. Verse 1 and 2. First, he warns us. He says, the promise of rest is still there for you. He says, I warn you, don't miss out. He's, I think he's writing to perhaps a church or maybe a group of churches like ours. Most of them hadn't missed out. They had believed, but there were some. He's warning them, don't miss out on this. Don't reject the good news, the gospel. Israel had their set of good news. It's the good news of deliverance from Egypt. It's the good news of a covenant to be the treasured possession of God Almighty. They had their good news. We have our good news, and it's even better. The readers of Hebrews had heard all of this, and yet some of them were still walking in unbelief, in rebellion. Verse 2, many had already received the good news. Many had already believed, and so they had entered this rest of God. Those of us in this room, and I assume it's the majority of us here in this room, we have believed in the gospel. We have opened our hearts, and we've found this rest from God. Whatever that rest is, we found it. But the author also acknowledges here that some have not. Some of you, like Matt said last week, I don't have a list. But I just assume in a group this large and in second service and watching online, I assume some here have not humbled themselves and believed this good news. Some are like Israel and stubborn and rebellious. Now, verse 3, we're starting to hone in on what this rest is. It is like God's rest. He says, they won't enter my rest because of unbelief. And it's like the rest that God took on the seventh day of creation in Genesis 2. Let's read it. Genesis 2, 2. On the seventh day of creation, God had completed His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it, He rested from all His work of creation. God rested. But why? Was he exhausted? I mean, that's a full week of work, right? Six days, bringing the universe, the heavens and the earth into existence, breaking a sweat on that one. Well, it wasn't because God was tired. He is the all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent God. Throughout the Old and New Testament, he's called the Lord Almighty, all might. He doesn't grow weary he merely spoke a few words and creation sprang into being. Why then did he rest? It seems he rested for two reasons. One is the word rest can also mean cease from activity. He had six days of work, of creative work, and on the seventh day he ceased from that work. But I think also there's an implication. We get it from the end of Genesis chapter 1. I think he just in a sense, sat back and enjoyed, reveled in the glory of what he had made. It says at the end of chapter 1, I forget what verse it is, but God looked at over all that he had made and he said, 
it is very good. It's very good. He found joy in what he had done. So the Lord's rest on the seventh day, I believe, is a picture of the rest he wants us to have in the gospel. Ceasing from our work and our toil, finding a peace in him, joining in the enjoyment of all that he is and all that he has made, and having all this not just for this life, but for the life to come. In verse 6, he again refers back to Israel after the Exodus while they wandered for these 40 years in the wilderness. They had the good news of the covenant right in front of them, this covenant between God and them, the good news of his presence. I mean, Israel was, was special to him, his treasured possession. They had the good news of safety from the enemies, of a promised land of great bounty, Did they find that rest? No, largely they missed it because they wouldn't believe. And the author of Hebrews is now saying, this could be you. So today, he says, today, be humble. Today, don't delay. Today, have a soft heart. Today, find the eternal rest of God and with God. Verse 9, now he brings in a word that I, I believe is not really used much in back uh, 2,000 years ago in, in the Greek. It's the word Sabbath rest. One commentator I read said he wondered if the author just made up this word to make the point. And the author here is not talking about keeping the Sabbath, the seventh day as holy and not doing any work, like, like on the seventh day of the week, which, by the way, is Saturday. It's not Sunday. But he's saying, I believe he's saying there's a type of a rest for you that's like the Sabbath, a day where we cease from our toil and, and we just enjoy life. We, we get physical rest. We get mental, emotional rest. We enjoy the company of the people of God. But here he's talking about an eternal Sabbath, an eternal rest where toil and sweat and anguish and pain and heartache and guilt and shame are no more. Eternal joy and forgiveness and satisfaction and happiness. This is for God's people, he says. And we will rest eternally from our own toil and our work. In verse 11, like back in verse 1, he urged the, the readers of this letter, this sermon. He says, let us be diligent. Let us make every effort to enter that eternal rest with God. He, he's basically saying, I don't want you to miss out on God himself. I want you to find peace with God, a place with joy and no condemnation, a place of harmony and satisfaction and rest in the very presence of God to be His treasured possession, a place of grace and mercy, which we'll look at next week. 
Then in verse 12, it seems to me he just abruptly switches topics. It's not, but it can seem that way. He starts talking about God's Word. Why is he doing this? What is he speaking of? I believe he's speaking of the way to find that rest in God. And it is through the revealed Word of God in the gospel of His Son, even as it's presented in the book of Hebrews. And these words, he said, are sharper than a sword, like the sharpest sword you can imagine. But not a sword that penetrates flesh and blood, but a sword that can penetrate all the way down into your soul, into your mind, into your motives, Even the darkest corners of your heart, God's Word is able to get in there. Even when we don't know what's going on inside, God does, and His Word can get in there. And it can reveal us to us. It can reveal God to us. It reveals the Son of God in all of His splendor and in His humility. Let's review that for a moment, his splendor and his humility. Chapter 1, I mean, the verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1 is just seven uh, descriptions of this sun, and it's, it's glorious. It's amazing. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint, the exact representation of the Father. He's the creator of all things that we see and can't see. He's the sustainer. He holds this world together with just a word, a powerful word from his mouth. And we learn in chapter 2 that the son, thinking of his humility, took on human nature where, where, where the divine and the human were merged in this great mystery we call the incarnation. How the Son, the Son of God became man and yet remained deity. It's a mystery. We also learn in chapter 2 that the Son as a true man was able to offer Himself in suffering to the point of death and died in our place as the substitute Lamb of God. He became the propitiation or the atonement taking the wrath of God upon Himself as true man and true God so that we could go free and find rest. So again, the Word of God, verses 12 and 13, reveals the Son of God and it calls us to cling to Him, to believe in Him, not to be like Israel. Learn from them. And the Word of God reveals us to us. It exposes us. And it calls us today. This day. Today, he says, don't harden your hearts. Don't think you can run and hide from God. You cannot. Don't trifle with God. He will find you out. Today, humble yourself before Him. And that's our passage today really ends on a heavy note. This heavy note in in verses 12 and 13. That we would not trifle with God. Today, humble ourselves and only then will we find this eternal Sabbath rest from God. Forever and ever. 
But there's even more than that. I don't want to leave us hanging and despairing at it, kind of a, what might feel like a gloomy end of, to our passage today, because there's mercy and grace, so you have to come back next week. It's spoiler. To be continued, you know, I hate watching movies like that. It's like, oh, you're kidding. But from our passage today, where do we go from here? What now? It's a hard passage, and yet there's something very enticing about this word rest. Let me offer two words this morning to you. The first one is today. You've already heard it several times last week and this week. And again, surely in a group this large, I don't have a list. I don't know who you are, but some of us in this room have never found this rest in God. And there is, just be honest, there's danger ahead for you. And the author, who some man wrote this years ago, but the ultimate author, God, appeals to you, calls to you, urges you. I urge you today, today, not tomorrow. Pay attention to the message of Hebrews. Pay attention to the Son. Do not... Do not trifle with them. Do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. The Apostle Paul said something similar to this in 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 1, he says, Working together with him, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At an acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. During the summer after my freshman year uh, uh, in, uh, here at Iowa State, I, I heard this message about Jesus. Sort of for the first time, I'd heard things about it, but more clearly, I had heard it. Really, it felt, felt like for the first time. About Christ, about eternal life. But I found myself fighting against it. I was, in a way, double-minded. I knew that the answer was in Christ. I knew I needed Him. I knew there was judgment for my sin. But I didn't want to yield in my pride and my stubbornness, my unbelief. I didn't want to admit that I was a sinner. I didn't want to admit that I really needed God. And I fought against it that summer after my freshman year for the whole summer, three months. But I finally yielded. It's, it's like God awakened me and humbled me and I was finally surrendered my pride and my unbelief and submitted myself to Jesus to receive this eternal Sabbath rest, glorious rest. And if you have never truly found that rest, today, today is your day. God himself pleads with you. I plead with you. Believe in the Son. Lay down all of your guilt and your shame on Jesus and He will take it gladly. Then you will find true rest with God. And if you're in this place this morning and you don't know what to do, come and talk to me afterwards. Email me, call me, whatever. Talk to me. I'd love to do that. Or talk to a trusted friend who you know here at Stonebrook. But today is your day. It's the day of salvation.
So the first word is today. The second word is rejoice. To those of you, like the author of Hebrews admits, some of you have believed that good news. You've received it. To those of you in this room who believed in the Son and are ne- you're now experience, experiencing the beginnings, just the beginnings. You're just getting a taste of this eternal rest. Let's rejoice in all that we have in the Son of God. We have so much. Give thanks today. Go home. Make a list. Talk about it over lunch. Over all that God has done for you. Think, let's, we can just make a quick list here now if you want, you want a head start. If you're taking notes, you'll already have it. You'll have a cheat sheet to go home for lunch to talk with your family about. What's part of our rest? Well, we have peace with God. Peace and rest, they sound pretty similar, don't they? We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. There's genuine joy. There's sustaining hope. There's rich satisfaction, true forgiveness. There's a promised inheritance. Healing for our broken hearts. We could just keep going on and on with the benefits and the glories of our eternal rest. True Sabbath is now yours. It's yours now. It begins now. Eternal life begins now. It's not just after you die. It begins now. And we do this even though we recognize all that eternal rest, this Sabbath rest, has not yet come to us in its fullness. Because we're still suffering, aren't we? We still feel that anguish daily, the fears, the longings, the guilt, the shame, the tiredness. It's not yet come in all its fullness. Some have described it as now, but not yet. Because the best is yet to come at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The word the Bible uses for that is hope. It's what keeps us going. We have that rest with God now, and yet we don't. What we have now is just a taste. And the best is yet to come. And the Lord describes himself even now in the New Testament. He, des- he describes himself with various, you might say, titles or names in the New Testament to tell us what we have now and what is to come that's even better. He calls himself the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1. Oh, I love that verse. I love that title. He will comfort you in all of your sadness and your brokenheartedness. The Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He's the God of hope. When life around us seems despairing and hopeless, He promises good to us in the near future, coming very soon. He's the Lord of peace. We certainly have peace with God, Romans 5.1. Peace with God in, in, the, in, the, in the judicial sense. But we can also find a peace with God in our day-to-day trials, the fears, the anxieties, the turmoil within. In the midst of a world in turmoil. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. I mean, if you, if you have trusted in the Son, your sins are gone. He's paid it in full. He's your propitiation, your atonement. And the wrath of God that you deserve was placed on His back 2,000 years ago. You are free. He's the Lord of peace. He's the Lamb of God. 
And finally, he's, well, one of many, but the final one I'm going to mention is the great high priest. You have to come back for that next week to learn about the grace and mercy that is ours because of Jesus. Make a list of all this and so much more of what you have in the gospel and rejoice. Breathe a sigh of relief today. The best is yet to come for you who are in the Son. Let's pray together. Lord, you have made us for peace because you are the Lord of peace. But it seems we so seldom have that peace and that rest. We certainly have external turmoil around us that brings us angst. We have pain and and heartache and fear. And then our inner turmoil, our sin again and again, we do keep doing it. Our weakness inside and out. And we have fears and pressures squeezing on us. But you are the God of, of rest. And we look to you first for eternal life itself, to be saved and ushered into your presence forever and ever. And we look to you second just for that rest and that quietness in our souls in a very noisy world. Help us to root ourselves in the soil of your grace and your mercy and help us to quiet our souls before you, the God of the Sabbath rest. In the name of the Son, we pray. Amen.